You are listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Assembly, Sedalia, Missouri. Thank you for tuning in. For more information about the church, you can reach us at www.bethelassembly.info. Tonight, I want to move into Genesis chapter 15. Abram has just been to battle. By the way, I can't wait until two weeks from now when we actually get to start calling him Abraham. Do you know how much of a struggle it is to call him Abram and his wife Sarai? I keep wanting to say Abraham and Sarah. So in two weeks, hallelujah, that moment is here and I can no longer, I no longer have to struggle to hold back. So Abram has just been to battle. He's rescued his nephew Lot, who had been captured um, in the previous battle. Then we see Melchizedek pour out a blessing on Abram. But then something happens. We see fear strike the hearts of Abram. Why is he afraid? I mean, after all, he's just won the battle. He should be living the victorious life, marching around in victory, right? He should be encouraged, confident, full of assurance. He simply has won the battle. Well, you would think that would be his response, but here we find himself, Abram, in need of a bit of encouragement, in need of something more from God. Maybe, maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've had a, a mountaintop experience and everything was going great, but suddenly on the backside of that mountaintop experience, you need a little encouragement from God because things aren't really going as, as great as everybody believes. My question is this. You trust God, but for some reason or another, you need that little extra push Or that nudge to move over into total belief. Have you been there before? I think that's where we find Abram in this moment. He believes that God, he believes in God enough to leave his native land. He believes in God enough to leave all that he knows, to leave his family and everyone else behind. He trusts that God will use him to bless every family. And that he will be the father of many nations. But there's still this elephant in the room. And the elephant keeps reminding him there is no son. God has shared with Abram that he is going to be the father of many nations. But there's still the fact that the son, the heir, is missing. How is this going to work? Abram is getting old. Yes? Last week we took some time to look at the fact there are major effects to our decisions. There's major responses to what we do. Number one, there's an impact that's made by obedience. We also learn there's an impact made by disobedience. We understand that deception brings about destruction. And also the object of our focus determines our outcome. But tonight I want to look at the fact there are choices that God makes as well. We see this transpiring in the life of Abram. As I stated a few moments ago, we see in Genesis chapter 15 that after all of these things took place, after this great battle took place, after this great victory that took place, God responded to Abram with a statement that had never been made before in the Bible. Up to this point, this statement had never been spoken by God. The very first time we ever see it 
transpire. God looks to Abram and he says this, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Do not be afraid. Now, I've read and I reread and I reread, and you can ask the ladies in the office. I, I really pressed for an entire afternoon reading through this section of Scripture and didn't have anything done on Monday. And I'm processing through and I'm walking out in their office and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to preach on. This should be an easy one and it's not making any sense. And, and I've read the chapters prior and I've read the chapters after and I've read this section of Scripture again and again and nothing is clicking. So I went home that night and I began to process process and really work through it. Not once did I ever notice where it said that Abram was afraid. He had just left the victorious battle. He had just verbalized his dependence upon God to the king of Sodom. Yet verse 1 of chapter 15 says, after these things transpired... After the victory of war, after the dependence upon God, after the, the blessing given by Melchizedek, after all of these things transpired, God spoke directly to Abram and he says, do not be afraid. So I sat in my office Tuesday morning and I'm again reading this section of scripture and I thought to myself, that's amazing. I, I don't know if you see it yet, but, but I was like, that is absolutely amazing. The choice that God makes is absolutely amazing. God chose in a moment when Abram was outwardly appearing victorious, but inwardly feeling fearful to step in and voice reassurance to this man of faith. Okay, see, I got excited. Because God was not fooled by the outward facade. Abram appeared victorious. He had just gone in. He beat guys up. He took names. He took numbers. He grabbed his family and said, we're out of here. You guys back up. On the outward side, it looked like Abram is the man. I mean, Chuck Norris, you think he's cool? He's nothing compared to Abram. I'm just saying. But in that moment, God peered upon this man that had just won a battle, this man that had just been blessed, this man that had just looked at the king of Sodom and declared his dependence upon God. He looks upon him, not just on what's happening on the outside, but he peered deep inside of him. He said, Abram, I know that, that everybody else is thinking right now, Abram's the man. I, I know that everyone else is looking at you going, man, he is victorious. He has just taken this battle. He has already won. He's brought his family out. But Abram, I know what's happening on the inside. And what I want to share with you is this. Don't be afraid. There's no need for you to be fearful, Abram. I will protect you. 
And remember, your reward will be great. In fact, let, let me read this whole account to you. Genesis chapter 1, or 15 verses 1 through 8. It says, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all these blessings when I don't even have a son? Well, there it is. There's that elephant that's floating around the room. Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said, said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? Tonight, I want to look at two observations that we can make from the choices that God makes. Observation number one is this. Sometimes I need help really believing. Anybody else ever there? I mean, I believe, I trust, but sometimes I need that extra little boost. You know, that extra little shot of espresso, that extra little energy, whatever it happened, to get me to that place of really, really, really believing. Sometimes I need help really believe. And here we see Abram needing a wee bit more help to truly wrap himself around the fact that God was going to, in fact, provide an heir for Abram, but also provide the promised land. He cries out to God, I don't even have a son. I know you keep telling me I'm going to have a son. I know you keep saying that my heirs are going to be numerous like the stars in the sky. But at this point, my servants is going to inherit all of this. How many of you know that God never, never, ever goes back on his word? He is always able to be trusted. The choices that God makes are not wishy-washy decisions. In fact, the Bible tells me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, Whatever God has promised, I love this, gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. Let me say that again. I think my mic cut out. Whatever has been promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. 
Okay, this side of the room heard it. A couple in here in the middle heard it. But this side of the room, I think you're dead. Check your pulse real quick. The promises of God, the promises that he shares, what he tells us he will do, get stamped by the grace of God with the yes of Jesus. In him, this is what we preach and pray, the great amen, God's yes, and our yes, together, glorious evidence. God affirms us, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting his yes within us by his spirit. He has stamped us with his eternal pledge, a sure beginning of what he is destined to complete. Whatever God promises is stamped It is finished. It's complete. It's done. How is this possible? Because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He completed it for you. He completed it for me. The choice that he made to send Jesus to the cross became a game changer for each of us who call ourselves Christians. We have been made complete And every promise has been fulfilled and stamped yes by Jesus. It may not have been so much that Abram doubted. After all, we read over and over in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abram had faith to do this and Abram had faith to do that. Could it be that he believed but he just needed a a little nudge to fully understand He needed a little help to completely be convinced. Probably because it just seemed so unbelievable. He's looking at his aging life. And he's wondering to himself, how is it going to be possible that I have a child? How is it going to be possible that I have an heir? Abram believed but he probably had a hard time taking it all in. So we ask for a convincing sign. Sometimes we believe, but we don't fully understand. Sometimes we believe, but things seem way too out there. And we ask God to give us some confirmation, something we can hold on to. Abram not so much needed a sign to believe as he needed a sign to solidify what God had said would come to pass. How many of you know sometimes our limited thinking, sometimes our, our human mind has a hard time comprehending the things of God because His ways are not our ways. His ways of thinking are not our ways of thinking. His ways of resolution aren't necessarily our resolution. Sometimes we need a little help getting to that place where we wrap ourselves around all that God has in store. That's the difference between Abram and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. You remember the ones that Jesus rebuked for asking for a sign. The religious leaders weren't believers who were asking for a sign of confirmation. They were skeptics putting Jesus to a test. There had already been plenty of signs. Jesus had been healing the sick, raising the dead, multiplying the fish and the loaves, and feeding thousands upon thousands of people. Miracle after miracle was taking place. They already had all the proof that they needed to believe, but they simply did not believe. 
That's why Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign. What we have with Abram is completely different. Abram didn't have an issue like the Pharisees had. The religious leaders were challenging Jesus to prove himself when he had already done so. God had already proved himself to Abram, for he already believed. So the asking for a sign that stemmed from a, a different motive than needing proof that God was who he said he was. There are people today who are asking for signs in order to believe, but they choose not to be convinced by the signs that they have already seen. They're skeptics, demanding proof when proof is already there. That's the difference that we see here. Like Abraham, like Abram, we can have strong faith, but there are still times when we need a little bit of confirmation to to pull things together. And you know what? I believe that's okay. Let me share a little promise with you that I found in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 91, I want to read it to you in its completion, and hopefully this will boost your faith just a little bit. This will nudge you a bit forward. This will help you to wrap yourself around the goodness of God. This will help us to respond to the choices that God is making. It says this, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I will trust Him. For He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from the deadly disease. He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrows that fly in the day. Do not dread the diseases that stalk in the darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how wicked, how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home, for He will order His angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life. And I will give them my salvation. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. And I began to read that scripture. I began to, to process through that scripture. And I had to ask myself a question. Who does this section of Scripture apply to? Who does Psalm 91 apply to? Can anyone grab a hold of it and just claim it? Can anyone wrap themselves around it and say that Scripture is for me? 
I don't know that they can. Because it starts with a very definitive description of who it applies to. Did you hear it? Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 9, if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, Verse 1 stated the description, those who live in the shelter of the Most High. In other words, those that allow their lives to take residence in the presence of God. The word used for live here is the word yeshav. It literally means to sit, to sit down, to remain, to stay, or to inhabit. Do you get the picture of what we're saying here. He's not talking about a, a flighty relationship. He's not talking about a, a drive-by relationship. He's not talking about a one-night stand relationship. He's saying, are you going to sit down? Are you going to hang out with me? Are you going to take residence in me? Are you going to be still and know that I am God? Are you going to allow what I do and the choices that I make to become your shelter? Then he goes on to list the promises that we can take to the bank. But halfway through, the author pauses for a moment to remind us, if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, In other words, if you take residence, if you sit down, if you stay, God will fulfill the promise that's been stamped with the yes of Jesus. His choices will come to pass on your behalf. But then I ask myself a second question. First off was, who does it apply to? Second off is, why do we have a reminder halfway through? I mean, was it not enough simply on the onset of Psalm 91 to state this? Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty and then begin to list the promises of how God will walk with us and lead us and protect us and shelter us and give us victory and keep us out of harm's way and list thing after thing that's stamped with the yes of Jesus. Is it not enough to mention it on the forefronts? Why do we have the reminder halfway through? Then I began to think of Abram's situation. And I realized that sometimes it's at about that point, the halfway mark, that the naysayers in our lives, they begin to swoop in and try to steal the moment from God. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, you're, you're grabbing a hold of the things of God. You're, you're walking in that moment. You're, you're hearing his promises. You're applying them to your life. And then that naysayer begins to talk into your life. And they, they cause a little bit of doubts. That they swoop in and try to take away the victory moments. 
So it's in that moment that the, the author begins to remind us, now remember who this is for. If you will just stay in the presence of God, if you will just rest in the Almighty, if you will just sit in His presence, inhabit in His presence, God's got this in store for you. The choices that God makes are for your benefit, not your destruction. We see that in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, not for destruction, but hope and a future. We also see this take place in Abram's situation. Abram has this moment, and he's not showing it on the outside, but on the inside he's afraid. And God says, even though you've just had this great battle, even though you've just been victorious, Abram, I want you to understand this. You don't have to be afraid. I'll protect you. Your heirs are going to be numerous like the stars in the sky. Can you even count them? I don't think so. I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you the land that I promise. We have a covenant agreement between Abram and God. The covenant agreement is being set in motion. Abram has set up the covenant, then something happens. Look at what happens in verse 9 through 11. Abram had just said, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure this will actually, we can actually possess it? Verse 9 says, The Lord told him, Bring me three, a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat, a three year old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all of these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the half side by side. We're going to talk about what this means in just a moment. He did not, however, cut the bird in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. Some vultures swooped down. Some naysayers came into that moment. Before the agreement could be set in motion, The vultures came in to destroy it. How often that happens in our lives. God is ready to fulfill a moment for you and suddenly distraction sets in. Sickness, financial issues, naysayers, just life. And we, rather than chase them away, rather than chew away all the distractions, we join them and move back into doubts. I want to encourage you today to to chase away the vultures in your life, to chase away the doubt, to chase away the naysayers, and let God fully and completely move in your life. Because sometimes, sometimes I need a little help just to believe. The second observation that I make is this. God is willing to complete it all for me. Did you know that? God is willing to complete it all for me. Look at this. How does God respond to Abraham's concern? He made him another promise. Actually, he made the same promise, but he made it again. He took Abram outside. He showed him the night skies. It looked like somebody had spilled a salt shaker in the deep, dark blue tablecloth. 
countless stars. And God says, if you can, count these stars. That's how many offsprings I'm going to give you. And then comes verse 6, one of, the most, one of the most important verses I believe in the Bible. And it says this, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Why, why do I believe that this is one of the most important verses? Well, Paul quotes the verse a couple of times simply to underscore the fact that we don't become righteous by our own doing good. No matter how good we are, no matter how much good we do, we are counted righteous just as Abram was, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of what we believe. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is credited to us. So Abram believed God. This is no doubt why he is regarded as a father of faith. But as we've seen, Abram's faith wavered, not just once or even twice, but many times. In fact, right here in chapter 15, no sooner do we read that Abram believed in the Lord than we read that he also doubted the Lord. In verse 7, God takes a moment to remind Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. And now look, when the subject of the land comes up, how does Abram respond? Not with faith. He asks this question, God, how can I be sure? That's not a faith question. In fact, faith doesn't question at all. Faith believes, doubt questions. Doubt says, I want to be shown, I need to see. If you live by faith, you don't live by sight. If you live by sight, you don't live by faith. But here's the thing, God's promises don't rest on our faith, they rest on His faithfulness. God's promises don't rest on our faith. They rest on His faithfulness. He doesn't make a promise He doesn't keep. Remember, it's stamped with the yes of Jesus. God is reliable even when our faith is unreliable. Has your faith ever been unreliable? Yeah, yeah. But His faith is always reliable. You know what God does when Abram begins to doubt? He doesn't say, well, that's it. You don't have enough faith, so I'm not going to do what I said. No, 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 no. He says, where your faith is weak, my faithfulness is strong. And then he stakes his life on it. I want you to see this. I want you to wrap yourself around this tonight. God steps in. He stakes his life on his reliability. That's what all this business is with bring me a a three-year-old heifer and bring me a three-year-old goat and bring me this ram and bring me a dove and bring me a pigeon. That's what this is all about. In Abraham's day, when you wanted to strike a deal with somebody, 
You didn't sign a contract in ink. You didn't pull out your pen, and I've always got a pen with me. You never know when you need a pen. And, and it wasn't a moment where you get out your paper and you're signing all the contracts. And by the way, you sign a contract today and it's like 45,000 pages. Get ready to initial here and initial there and sign here and sign there and, and have somebody verify that you're the right person and initial that they verify that you're the right person. You know what I'm saying? But that's not how it worked in Abram's day. You didn't sign a contract in ink. You signed it with blood. You gathered these animals just as Abram did. You cut them in half and lay the halves over against one another. So they formed a little path between them. And both parties who were involved in the contract would walk through the severed pieces. What in the world does that mean? The point was this. If you and I walk this gruesome pathway together, I'll be saying to you, if you don't keep your promise, may my, I'm sorry, if I don't keep my promise, may my fate be the same as these poor, miserable animals. And you be saying the same about yourself. You're signing a contract in blood. If I'm not faithful to my promise, may my fate be just like these animals that have been cut in half and they're laying on this contract area. It was called making or actually cutting a covenant. A covenant is a promise with consequences if the promise is broken. Do you remember when you were kids and you'd make promises with one another? And you say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Did you really mean that? No, you just said that because that's what you did. And then we got a little later, closer to the 2000s and so, and now they start peaky promising because they don't want to stick a needle on their eye and they don't want to die. Those wimps. (laughs) But in Abraham's day, They meant this. We're going to walk this gruesome pathway together. And if I'm not faithful, may this happen to me. But I want you to notice something that happened or rather didn't happen in this moment. When it came time to walk the gauntlet, when it came time to walk this gruesome path. Remember, it was always both parties walking side by side, making the agreement together in that moment. Abram never walked the path. But God put him in some sort of conscious trance of some sort. The Bible says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. So this deep sleep came upon him. And God took the walk between the, two, or between the severed halves all alone. Which meant what? What does that mean? God took the risk all on himself. Are you wrapping yourself around this? God could have looked at Abram and said, okay, we're going to walk this journey together. And if you're not faithful, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, if you don't do what you're called to do, may this be your fate. But God took Abram and he said, rock baby, in the treetop, go to sleep. Hey, while you're sleeping, 
I'm going to go ahead and sign the contract. And you know what? I'm going to sign for both of us. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's exciting. God's willing to go to the full extent for you and for me. Taking the full risk for us. Verse 17 and 18 says, After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and I'll explain that in a moment, pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given the land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. Now, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, what are they? Well, they comprise what is referred to as a visible appearance of an invisible God. So they were basically a representative of God going through, they they were the presence of God going through these carcasses. They represented God passing between the halves. So as to say, if I don't keep my promise... I'll give you my life. You've got some fill-ins. I want you to write this down. We saw part of this quote a moment ago. I want to see the rest of it. God's promises don't rest on our faith or even our faithfulness. They rest on His faithfulness. God's promises, they don't rest upon my faith or lack thereof. They don't rest on my faithfulness or lack thereof. They rest completely on Him. He has gone the journey for me. He has crossed through. He has set up a covenant for me. But what about our promise? We break our promise to God all the time. We may not mean to. We mess up. We falter. Abraham did. In verse 6, he believes God, but by verse 8, he doubts God. Two verses. He believes and he doubts. He believes and he doubts back and forth. But honestly, a pattern that many of us are quite familiar with. We've been unfaithful to God. Not only have we broken our promises and our commitments to Him, we've broken His law, we've broken His hearts. So who pays the price for our lack of being faithful to our portion of the contract? Who pays the price? Well, God's taking the risk all on Himself. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus, the son of God. The son of Abraham. Think about this. Jesus is living proof that God keeps his promises. God gave Abraham a son in his old age, and we're going to learn about that next week. And that son had children, and his children had children, and their children had children. And indeed, Abraham became, as God promised, a great nation. And one of the sons in the line of Abraham has a child named Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the verse, the first verse in the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Look at that. Jesus, the Son of God, He came to keep faith with God's covenant with us. A covenant that we've broken. God didn't break it, but we broke it. Over and over, we break it. We're a faulty people. There are consequences. There are severe consequences. Just as the heifer and the goat and the ram. Just ask them. They bear silent witness to what the consequences really are. And who answers for those consequences? Jesus. Stand. It is finished. He who keeps his promises to us assumes the responsibility for our broken promises. It's hard to believe. It's hard to wrap ourselves around. Can you believe that tonight? Can you believe him? Can you trust him? Can you put your faith in him? Let me phrase it this way. Will you? His promises aren't dependent upon our faith or our faithfulness. They're dependent upon Him. His promises don't rest upon us. They rest on His faithfulness. Tonight in this place, I want to challenge you to accept what God does and allow it to set a new covenant in your life. He's created this covenant for you. And when it came time to, to sign the contracts, the sacrifice is split, the pathway is laid out, and he looks at you and says, I just want you to hang out here for a moment. Take a little siesta. I'm going to walk this path for the two of us. Because all of this is contingent upon me, not upon you. So tonight, will you rest in Him? Will you, will you sit in His presence? Will you inhabit in His presence? Will you be still and know that He is God? Because the moment you make that commitment, all these promises 